Welcome back for another episode of the Happy at Work podcast with Laura, Tessa, and Michael. Each week, we have thoughtful conversations with leaders, founders, and authors about happiness at work. Tune in each Thursday for a new conversation. Enjoy the show. to the Happy at Work podcast. We are so excited to be joined today by Phil Lewis. Phil is the founder of Corporate Punk. And Phil, welcome to the podcast. Nice to meet you. And uh, Phil, tell us a little bit, first of all, a little bit of your career journey, as well as what is Corporate Punk and what was your inspiration in finding this company? I started my career back in marketing in what now feels like 1842, but in reality, it was about 25 years ago. And I spent some time in marketing. I spent some time in management consultancy. And two things became very clear to me. The first thing was, at a personal level, it was very clear after about a decade, I wasn't actually interested in solving people's problems for them. I was interested in why they had those problems in the first place. And what had struck me, which brings me on to my second point, is that um, going through my career, I'd routinely been surrounded by people who are very intelligent, very well energized, load of passion, load of good ideas, and got out of bed every single morning to do the best that they could, which is fundamentally how I think people are wired at work, right? I don't think people go into work to do anything other than their absolute best. And yet, it seemed to me that organizations were very good at not allowing all that talent, that energy, those good ideas, everything else to kind of bubble up. Mm -hmm. And the question became, well, why is that? And a kind of related question in my mind, especially being a consultant, was why is that also true of the consultancies that I work with? And why is it also true that the consultancies aren't helping sort that problem out for clients either? And I suddenly realized, actually, that was my really what I wanted to spend my time looking at, because the answer to that question turned out to be very complicated and very interesting to me. And I decided I needed a vehicle to do it. So I reoriented my career, retrained in this work that I now do, organizational development work, and founded a business called Corporate Punk. And the idea behind Corporate Punk is it's about the unlocking of natural energy and natural talent in an organization and helping people to be who they really are at work in the understanding and the belief that actually that means that in general, and this is borne out to be true, if people feel happy, rewarded, and their natural selves at work, funnily enough, they do better work, and employers get to benefit from their energy, their talent, their good ideas, their intellect, and all the other things that they get out of bed to exercise every single morning. And over the last 10, 12 years, me and my team have had the really extraordinary privilege of working with organizations around the world in a range of different contexts, a range of different environments to help them do just that. So when they're going through some sort of change or transformation and they're not getting the results that they're looking for, 
in the change and transformation, it's usually to do with the fact that people are in some sense feeling oppressed or feeling, you know, uh, unable to be who they are. So our work is help people work better together and help them unlock that natural talent, all those good ideas in a way that ultimately means they can get somewhere that they otherwise couldn't have gotten. And that's the nature of the work that we do. I love it. And I'm curious, uh, what are some key principles or philosophies that are underpinning the idea of a human-first approach in corporate environments? And how have you seen these principles positively impact workplaces? I would say you have to start by understanding why a human-first approach in corporate environments is actually worth pursuing. Like there's a premise of the question thing I feel like we mm-hmm. have to kind of get into there. Mm-hmm. And for me, I believe that as individuals, we all have a degree of sovereignty, agency that we need to have in our own lives. I think we need and we want to get out of bed and do work that feels like it is making an impact and also feels like it's moving us forward in some important emotional, psychological, capability-oriented way. And that a human-first approach is fundamentally one that acknowledges that. And as I will talk to you about, we've actually proven over the last 10 years, 12 years, that if you allow people to be their natural selves and you allow them to exercise that sovereignty and that agency, those creative capabilities and everything else, the business results do, funnily enough tend to start taking care of themselves. And I would say, going back to that question then that you asked me around sovereignty, sorry, around um, what the key philosophies or principles are, Michael, I would say, well, there's one right at the heart of all of our work, which is you do change with people, not to them. Mm-hmm. So there's this absolute nonsense that gets talked about people don't like change right? It's complete nonsense. There are so many examples in life of change we all enjoy. (laughs) You could take a spurious example like a haircut. (laughs) It's a change we all enjoy. (laughs) Or you could take more meaningful examples like a promotion at work is a change that people enjoy. What people don't enjoy is having stuff done to them, living in conditions of height or working conditions of heightened ambiguity, in a situation where they have no sense of agency, no sense of autonomy, their natural skills and talents aren't being used profitably or indeed at all in some cases in the context of what the organization is seeking to do. And they have no idea what their contribution can be or why their contribution matters. And in that situation, funnily enough, you're not going to get the best out of anybody. And really very poor consequences start to result from that. So in our work, the number one thing is you have to do change with people, not to them. Now, that turns out to be quite a complicated endeavor for lots of different reasons to do with how human beings think and work and the skills that they've got and the way that we develop people going through places of work. But I would say that philosophy is absolutely at the heart of everything we do. And all of the impact that we've made over the last decade has been through that one shift, that one word with not two. 
So I I want to ask about you know strategies organizations can employ to go towards you know to become more human centric. But before I do that, I do need to follow up on the change question because I've kind of poured myself into this research and literature over the past um, over the past year or so, and I I could not agree with you more. Um, I think, and I think we're at a kind of a time with this generational shift in the workplace. I think everything that you're saying right now resonates. So it resonates with everyone, to be honest, but some of us have had it conditioned out of us as Gen Xers are are really quite cynical, but younger people under the age of 35, Gen Z and, and, uh, and younger Gen Y or millennials, you know, I, I think that that authenticity piece is so important to to their work experience, and they they really are willing to not negotiate that, right? To to be in a place where they can be authentic, and I think the change piece is so important because I think it's been taught. Right? Both Michael and I teach in business programs. We, you know, you employ these change management theories that are very top down, you know, and I think change is really evolving to be more of a bottom-up approach and that it has to be really coming from, the ideas have to be coming from the masses, not necessarily just the top of the house. I don't know if you have a any particular comment to that. I think it's about understanding roles. So for me, what is the job of leadership? Well, the job of leadership is vision and strategy. And then the piece that one can profitably, usefully democratize an op- across an organization might be the how that strategy is best implemented mm-hmm. and the job then of doing it. So I don't think you get to outsource the job of leadership to your people in a change context or in any other. And for mm-hmm. me, leadership is about, you've got to be very clear on where we're going and kind of a top-line view on how you think Got the it. organization yeah. needs to get there. But where change with people, not to them, really comes into the fore is when you start to then engage people and say, look, this is what we're trying to do in the organization. What do you see? What do you think we need to do in order to be able to get to where we're going? What role would you like to play in all of that? How is it that you think you can contribute? What's going to trip us up, Mm -hmm. right? All of those sorts of things, when you engage in that way, two things happen. The first thing is you get an extraordinary amount of insight and usually actions and a whole lot of good stuff out of those conversations that actually will only support good quality strategic development. Mm -hmm. And the second thing is the process of actually contributing helps people understand and feel a part of the change that you're wanting to make in the organization. Organizations are very good at using language like, we need to take people on the journey. What we need to take people on the journey means in 95, 98% of organizations is we need to write some PowerPoint charts and then we need to hammer people over the head with those PowerPoint charts until we think they've understood what it is that they're trying, we're trying to tell them to do, right? That is not taking people on any kind of journey whatsoever. That is playing a game which is best understood as you're either part of the steamroller or part of the pavement doesn't work, right? <laughs> so so the job is do the inefficient but rewarding thing of having the conversations 
of the type I was just talking about with your people and see what comes out of it and then see how you can negotiate collectively to a better place on the back of that. So it's very interesting in what you were just speaking, Phil, about change. So when we think about other types of strategies that companies can employ to think about how they can transition to a more human-centric culture, what would you recommend? It's a very big question. And it's a question, I think, in a sense, which is has to be answered based on the experience of individual companies. But there is one place I would start with almost any organization, which is look at your language. So what happens a lot in transitions, transformations, change work, and when you start to talk about whether it's culture or whether it's rewiring how people work together, whatever, is language gets used and it gets used in a way that does one of two things. The first thing, it either clouds, obfuscates meaning in a way which is fundamentally unhelpful. An example of that might be actually what I talked about a moment or two ago when I was saying taking people on the journey, right? That's language which says one thing, which is actually, we'd like to put our arms around you and walk together, but actually the belief system and the behavior that that language actually illustrates is somewhere completely different, right? So language can be really, really unhelpful. We've seen situations in change where people will talk about the word agile, for example, and we would ask a leadership team to define what they mean by agile, only to realize there's half a dozen working definitions of it, right? So getting clear on what we mean by the language we use, the specificity of that language, and making sure it's accurate to intention is really important as a foundation for change. The second way that language shows up, I have this theory called like linguistic fatigue, is what I've named it, where it's like when you start talking about vision, purpose, uh, let's think of another one, strategy is another great example of it, transformation, change, you can sometimes just literally see shoulders drop in organizations because actually what's going on with that language is there's some really interesting research done out of Bournemouth University a few years ago by a guy who was talking about, and he, he saw on a hypo- to prove a hypothesis, which is organizations store trauma in the way that human beings store trauma, right? So really, really interesting um, theory, right, to kind of work with. And he had plenty of examples of this. And I would say, intuitively, that feels right, given the nature of our work. So when you start using like vision, strategy, purpose, whatever, whatever, that kind of language, the reason the shoulders drop is because of historic associations with failed projects or endless meetings or whatever else it's been, a kind of pointless walk to a dismal place, right? <laughs> is, is how a lot of that stuff actually um, people have experienced it throughout the course of their careers. So you've got language that obfuscates, but you've also got language that conjures associations and sometimes associations with bad historic experience. And then we just use that language again, right? And we start talking about change and transformation using the verbiage that does the things that I've just said. And then what actually happens is we've created the opposite um, 
sort of immediate reaction to the one that we were hoping for, which is perhaps one of engagement or one of excitement or one of positive intent. So it's not to say what organizations need to do is start inventing fake language. It's not like disappear off to the thesaurus and see what synonyms you can find for strategy and start using those. But it is to be conscious of what is going on in our use of language. And any transformation process that is about human beings, we live our lives in language, right? We are, we're all linguistic animals. We live in language, we live in stories, all that kind of thing. If we haven't got an elevated consciousness of how people might be hearing the words we use, we're not setting ourselves up for an effective change. I, I love this. And now uh, I, I'd like to pivot a little bit over to, to well-being. And it's considered a critical aspect of that first that human first approach. And I'm curious, how could leaders effectively prioritize and nurture the well-being of their teams, especially if they're working in areas that are high pressure or competitive? Are there any tips they could take away from this podcast and start to use? I would say when we talk about well-being, we have to be clear on what we mean by well-being. Mm-hmm. Because it's one of sorry, I keep going on about language, don't I? But it's one of those words that kind of conjures up again associations. And well-being, in our experience, is not really influenced by you get to have an extra duvet day from time to time, or you get to uh, go on some yoga retreat once a year or whatever. Well-being is actually influenced by how people are treated in the day-to-day, the day-to-day experience of work. Specifically, what we ask people to look at when they're thinking about well-being is energy levels in teams. Change work, changing how you work to be, say, more human-centric. It takes time, and it takes energy, and it's hard. And the reason it's hard is because you're having to learn skills and... uh, ways of collaborating and whatnot that you've not had to embrace in the past. And that brings with it not only the capacity requirements, because it takes time to learn new things, but it also brings a cognitive load. And sometimes it throws up all sorts of emotional stuff. And people are very busy. Like, you know, we've, we've all got a lot of demands on our time. So we say to leaders, look, how conscious are you of energy levels in your team? And practically speaking, what you don't want to be doing is constantly having your team on some sort of emotional roller coaster, right? Excitement, oddly, sounds like a great thing at work, is actually really not a good thing at all. And the reason that it's not a good thing is because it's psychologically exhausting, right? You cannot stay excited or indeed despondent for terribly long without feeling quite tired, right? What you're trying to create at work, funnily enough, and this sounds benign to the point of being idiotic, is a pleasant work environment. Pleasant, believe it or not, you can withstand for a very, very long time. So practically, what we talk to leaders about then is, however long you think this change is going to take, double it. And the reason that you might want to double it is because you're going to need to give your people space and time. And you're going to need to give them space and time, not only because it's going to take longer to learn those new tools and techniques and ways of working than it did before, but they're also going to need space and time to recharge. 
And a lot of the time, the most practical thing you can do is try and reset the dial on the corporate expectations. One of the things that people say to us is, well, we haven't got 12 months to do this change work. And we go, but you will have 12 months to clean up all the mess that results from you doing it wrong. That's a great... (laughs) (laughs) So, like, pick your... Pick your battle. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> so, so management of well-being for us is management of energy levels, particularly in the context of change. And, and practically speaking, what you really do need is, is to be able to create capacity, create space and time for this kind of work to, to go on. So I want to follow up about a concept that we talk a lot about in, our, in the class that we teach at Harvard. And also it's been a a topic of a lot of podcasts, which is psychological safety in workplaces and how kind of what is your take and, and advice that you would give to leaders around how they can cultivate uh, psychological safety within their culture of their organization so that employees, you know, it fosters environments of innovation and employees can share those ideas and, and so forth. So how, how can organizations do that better? So some people really don't enjoy my take on psychological safety. So I I issue a health warning for what follows. But the... the, Now you're intrigued. You'll say, it'll turn out this is what you teach, actually. But the, the first thing I would say is that psychological safety can never be a binary state. Right? It is now that you can never be either safe or unsafe. It's best understood, I think, on a continuum. Secondarily, no organization can ever be 100% safe. Right? That's just true in any culture. You know, it's true because organizations actually don't owe their employees that. Right? They don't owe their employees the guarantee of safety. And it's not actually a check that you can never hope to cash in the sense that any number of events can hit an organization and it can put organizations under threat, can put roles under threat, all that kind of thing. So I think we have to be really clear when we're talking about psychological safety that we have to establish a specific definition for what we mean by psychological safety first and foremost. And from where I'm sitting, That definition is something like, I feel ready and able to enter the zone of uncomfortable conversations in service of organizational progress. That is what I would define as psychological safety. Psychological safety isn't, I can say, for example, whatever I like and have a hall pass on it being fine. And psychological safety isn't, I know my job here is 100% safe, come what may. It's just not realistic, that kind of stuff. And I think a lot of the discussion around psychological safety doesn't get specific enough around a working definition of it, whether you agree with mine or whether you don't. Now, then I would say, if you accept that logic, the next thing I would go to is, as a leader, there are a couple of questions that come from that. So the first thing is, how are you setting boundaries with your people? And how are you signaling what is and isn't desired by way of contribution in different contexts. So for example, we're in a creative, what I would call a creative conversation. We're in problem-solving mode together, 
right? Now, me being in problem-solving mode means, for me anyway, there's no hierarchy in the conversation. Come one, come all, let's get into it and let's have a rough and tumble discussion about what we're trying to do and where we might try and take this thing. So the boundary I'm going to set there, the contribution that I'm going to ask for, and my signaling around what is and isn't appropriate in that environment is going to be wholly different than, for example, if I'm in a situation where some issue has hit an organization and there just needs to be a degree of command and control to get through that particular situation. Psychological safety is contextual, and it's the job of the leader, in my view, to be able to establish that and then nurture and encourage people into it. So if you go back to the creative conversation context I was talking about previously, one of the things that can be very difficult is to enter that zone of uncomfortable conversations, to get into conflict, to resolve conflict quickly, to resolve it well, right? To end up disagreeing with somebody who might be several rungs higher than you from a pay grade and experience point of view. And sometimes people need nurturing and coaching and mentoring into a space where that becomes possible. And they also need to be trained in their understanding of context. So when organizations are being held back by a lack of psychological safety, what often happens is that boundary setting, that signaling, and that nurturing isn't happening. And what is happening is a default to the hierarchy and, a, and no understanding of context or nuance, which actually squeezes out all useful discussion and debate and doesn't allow people to bring their natural experience and perspective into a situation. And that is not healthy, particularly in any kind of knowledge economy. I love it. And I, I love your definition. I think it's good. It sounds like it took a long time to get to it. <laughs> spent a lot of time on it. I, I would say, Michael, actually, it's more about, it's more about, I got a little bit tired of hearing all these conversations about psychological safety. It's a bit like the agile thing and going, what do you mean by that? And actually there was about 25 different definitions at work and it's like, here's one. <laughs> Let's debate that, you know? I love it. Uh, so let's now move over to, to change management. So, you know, cultural transformation can be really difficult, especially if you want to maintain that, that human first approach. So if I could just give you a hypothetical example, how would you, if you were brought into an organization and your task was change the culture of fear hmm. to more of a human first approach, how would you, how would you do it? I'm going to give you an actual example from how we've done it in Ooh. some of our work. And this was for a global financial services organization. This was a three-year project. And they pretty much asked us that question. We have a culture of fear. We have a culture of order taking in one global part of our business. And we've been spinning our wheels on this for two years now. And we've got six months to prove that change can be possible. And we said to them, well, the first thing you need to do is stop pushing adjectives around on paper, right? So there's no point having a conversation where we're just talking about, you know, a lot of culture change kind of is just, we're going to just push adjectives around and see where we go. No, abandon that. Let's stop doing all of that. Let's instead do a really uncomfortable thing. And we said to them, let's get six people together, drawn from across the organization, and give them an experience of working on a specific project, which will help you define in a way 
which is creative, collaborative, non-order takey, and they don't have to live with the fear of any repercussions if they get stuff wrong. Back to your point about psychological safety and the, way, the conversation we we're having there. And they went, well, that's not a change strategy. And we went, let's just give it a go, shall we, for three months, because you've been doing this for two years and you've not been getting terribly far, so let's give it a whirl. One of, and we actually supported that team with some training in conflict, because you can train in uh, the ability to engage in conflict. We coach them through some specific methodologies that we teach as well. And we just let them go for those three months. Two things happened. The first thing was that actually they all hated it and then they loved it. They were like, this is really uncomfortable. And then actually they were like, this is really quite exciting and inspiring way to work. And the second thing was the results that that team achieved in those three months were more than two times and in some cases three times the benchmarks for performance in that team previously. And we were like, okay, so something good seems to be going on here. So then what we did was we said, now let's find another three teams of people that have got six, eight, ten folks working in them, and let's do it again. And over the course of two or three years, we had a kind of rinse and repeat approach to basically training small groups of people in how to work in ways that are more collaborative, creative, innovative, non-fear-based, all the rest of it. Over and above that, sort of we, we, we put a strategic framework so that there was a sensible architecture for what we were trying to achieve. And there was also some good quality metrics that enabled us to um, measure progress. In the interest of change with not to, at a certain time, we started to get alumni from the people who'd been through all this together. And we started to get them involved in the scaling process so that they themselves were starting to drive it and learn how to do all of that. So practically speaking, it was a start small and iterate. And what happened was over the course of those three years, it was classic hockey stick stuff. Nothing seemed to be going on. Nothing seemed to be going on. Nothing seemed to be going on. Then boom, everything seemed to be changing very, very quickly. And I will tell you two things. The first thing is, it was the most successful transformation. I shall tell you three things. The first thing is, it was the most successful transformation project that financial services group had done in 20 years. The second thing was that the benchmarks of the results, this has gone forward for all sorts of business transformation awards now, the, the benchmarks, the results uh, that the teams achieved working in this way were somewhere between two times and in some cases 5,000 times higher <laughs> than their internal benchmarks, right? In terms of like, uh, it's like, that could be a percentage, it's not 5,000%, it's crazy, crazy levels of exceeding the the thing. The third thing was, and this is my favorite thing I think has ever been said to me in my career, was the guy said afterwards, he went, we got invited to the board meeting at which all this was being shared, the big kind of, you know, the, all, all the big sort of kahunas with that. And uh, this guy said, he's a very cynical guy, and he just said at the end, he goes, not only have you delivered a successful transformation, but people actually seem to have enjoyed it. And I shall always wonder how you did that. <laughs> and it's like, start small, experiment, give people ownership, change with not to, and don't rush to scale, and 
collaborate, collaborate, collaborate. And then, you know, you, you, over time, as I said earlier, your results take care of yourselves. So we move from a fear-based culture to a very creative one in a way actually where even now we've stepped off that project, they continue to work out how they want to change and evolve what they're doing. Well, that is a fantastic story to end on. <laughs> um, I, I love uh, being able to go through this change and transformation and, and like the process. I mean, I think if that in and of itself is a huge success, I haven't really heard that anecdote ever <laughs> of people liking the process of change. Um, so, Phil, this has been a, a wonderful conversation. I could talk to you for hours. I, I'm super curious. I guess in, in one word, <laughs> you're going to say, this is so unfair. In one word, are you, how are you feeling about the kind of transformation of AI that it's having on the workplace? Wrongly directed. Uh, wrongly directed. Although that was two words. That's I hyphenated them in my head. <laughs> No, but, oh, gosh. Oh, well done. Yeah, Amazing. To bring you back. But you got to give us another 30 seconds on what you mean by that. Okay. Here's what I mean by that. I think that we are stuck in a mode of thinking about business, which treats businesses as though the machines, not organisms. And I think the idea of a machine which constantly needs optimizing is a very, very outmoded way of looking at business. And the best way of looking at business is as an organism that can flourish and grow through the cultivation of its natural elements, right? That sounds a bit hippie, but actually it reflects the truth of how human beings are. AI is another example in my mind of where we're looking to technology to try and provide an answer for how, as human beings, we should be potentially working together. And my thing is, in the same way that science has never been able to explain consciousness, science can't explain creativity. And for me, the answers to the problems that we have in the world are to be found, for the most part, in human capabilities, human creativity, and human love. And I think we should be focusing there in business, not just looking to AI as some sort of paradigmatic, panglossian future. Well, that is the best note to end on. <laughs> That's great. I love it. I love it. I love it. Um, Phil, this has been a, a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for joining. Again, we know you're in the UK and it's Friday evening where you are. So thank you so much for your time today. It's been a total pleasure talking to you both. <laughs> Have a great weekend, Phil. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to hear future episodes, be sure to subscribe to the Happy at Work podcast and leave us a review with your thoughts. Are you interested in speaking on a future episode or want to collaborate with us? Let us know. You can send us an email at admin at happyatworkpodcast.com. And lastly, follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter for even more happiness. See you soon.